Welcome to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. Writing a book is a dream for many people, and in today's society, it has become easier and more important than ever. If you are an expert, speaker, coach, or an authority in your field, having a book is the new business card. It can increase your credibility, enhance your status, and make you the go-to person in your field opening doors and bringing a flood of opportunities straight to you. You can increase your fees and start choosing the clients you really want to work with. The Author's Podcast Show with Lisa Newton is designed to inspire, educate and inform you, both entrepreneur and individual, on how to write a book, as well as writer's tips and strategies on how to actually get that book written. On today's show, you learn more about how to write a book, including writing ideas, marketing, and how to succeed in getting a book written. Here we go with the author's podcast, and here is your host, Lisa Newton. Welcome to another episode of the Authors Podcast. Today, my guest is Maxwell Ivy, known around the world as the Blind Blogger, award-winning self-help author, hilarious motivational speaker, prolific podcast and radio show host, guest, online media publicist, and host of the What's Your Excuse show. I have on the line Maxwell Ivy. His latest book is called The Blind Blogger's New York City Adventures and how you can make your dreams come true. So on the line, do I have Max? Oh, hi, Lisa. Yes, you do have me. (laughs) Excellent. So, Max, I was intrigued, absolutely intrigued by the name The Blind Blogger. I've read upon your autobiography, and um, it says that you lost your sight at age 12. Right. I had uh, had some vision loss before then, but I had a big loss in vision. At that time, when I had to start using a white cane and they started teaching me Braille and I began getting lessons in how to navigate things such as crossing streets, taking buses, going to the airport, etc. So I was more than legally blind by then. It stayed kind of pretty constant until I was in college. And then it decreased again down to what I have now, which is light perception or, as I see it, total blindness. Mm. So you've had a very eventful life because you were born into a family of carnival owners in Texas. So what was life like growing up? (laughs) Well, uh, I tell people there's not a lot of difference between growing up in a carnival family and growing up among people who are in farming or ranching or some other small business, especially if the entire family is in it. Of the six children in my grandfather's side of the family, four of those six would operate carnivals of various sizes of their own. So We grew up in a large family. There was probably 15 or 20 cousins. And so we played together. When the family would travel, we would either stay with relatives together or we would be out on the midway together. So it was a lot of kids, a lot of loud, noisy events, made up games in the backyard, just growing up having fun. And then as I would lose my vision, since just about all of us had some part in the business. Uh, First, my grandmother put me in the food wagon, uh, boxing up the popcorn and uh, putting the syrup on the snow cones. And then later I would uh, operate some kids games. And then after I went off to college and worked for the IRS for a while, I came back. And at that time I ran some kids games and I also did the booking. So 
I spent a lot of time calling people up and asking if they would like to have our carnival at their event. And as a result, I spent a lot of time with people telling me no. <laughs> so you actually started your own business and you were buying and selling amusement rides and you learn how to blog using software for visually impaired people. And then you've made a name for yourself online and you now share your experiences on The Blind Blogger. Right. I've actually made a name for myself twice, although I hate to say that because it sounds like I'm bragging. That's fine. Especially since I didn't choose either name. As <laughs> helping people sell surplus amusement rides and games, I've had the pleasure of trying to help the people in Gogo Lake, Ohio, sell their beloved wooden roller coaster so it wouldn't have to be demolished. They were so happy with my respect for their history and the ride that they started calling me Mr. Midway, and that's kind of stuck. So in the amusement world, I'm Mr. Midway. And then with the blogging side of it, I was online promoting the equipment sales. This was before I started the second website. And I was in social media groups, mainly on LinkedIn with other bloggers, and people started referring to me as the blind blogger because, as it happens in many groups that I am part of, whether it be in person or online, I'm usually the only blind person in the gathering. So as a way of shorthand, they called me the blind blogger. When I did finally accept that my writing could inspire others and started this website, I asked people what I should call it, what domain name I should register. And they all said, we've been calling you the blind blogger for two years now. And so if that's available, you should do it. And .com wasn't, but .net was. So I'm now at the blindblogger.net. And then another thing that happened over that course of time is a lot of people used to say, if Max can do it, then what's my excuse? I've gotten that comment lots on both websites. And while I tried to come up with anything, but no excuses or what's your excuse for the name of my podcast, I just couldn't escape it. And uh, thankfully, it relented and took the name. And it's working really well for me. The only regret I have about it is there are some other people using what's your excuse in their website or their blog or their podcast title. And when I looked to see if whatsyourexcuse.com was available, I found out it is available, but the current owner of it was $25,000 for it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if people, if they want to find What's Your Excuse or the What's Your Excuse show, they just have to find it at theblindblogger.net. <laughs> well, I think it's a really catchy name, both of them, the name of the show, What's Your Excuse. And just, you know, what excuses do people come out with? Just what have you heard? I'm going to answer this in two parts. First, they say things like, uh, I don't have the abilities, I don't have the money, I don't have the time. My family or my employer don't allow me enough time to pursue any type of a big goal. Often I hear people complain about overwhelming, like they start and they think they have a good idea, but they consider all the things they're going to have to do or have to learn or things they're going to have to accumulate in order to make that goal a reality, and they talk themselves out of it. Uh, mm -hmm. The other side of this question is I'm starting to find more and more that people are using that expression against me. When I decide that there's something I don't want to do because I don't believe it's right for me at this time, people will generally go, I thought you were the no excuses guy. Or, <laughs> why don't you want to try to learn a new language? Or why don't you want to go skydiving? Or why? You know, I'm like, look, the blog blogger has limits. And the list starts with skydiving, bungee jumping, whitewater rafting, swimming with sharks, and learning a new language. You know, those are some of the things I'm like, uh -uh, I ain't doing. And one of the things that I've recently started talking to people about is one of the last lessons we most of us learn as entrepreneurs or as creative people is we have to learn to say no. And yeah. 
very hard thing to learn. It's something most of us never get good at because we don't want to pass on opportunities. We don't want to let people down. We, we have those feelings of guilt where we feel like we should do, we should at least try to take advantage of opportunities or to show up to challenges. But sometimes the best thing for you, the best thing to allow you to continue moving forward on your own path is to go, that's just not right for me at this particular time. And it's hard. I completely agree. It's it's quite funny because I think I saw something on, on YouTube and it was about saying no, how it's empowering and how sometimes people who are suffering from overwhelm or fatigue or whatever it might be or haven't got time is because they've got too much on and you can claim back some of your time by saying no to things that, you know, aren't serving you. Right. And the other part of that is if you're not willing to say no, then you're not able to protect yourself. And mm. if you aren't healthy, if you're drained either physically or emotionally, you can't serve yourself, much less anybody else. That's it. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like and share this channel. So if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Max Ivy. He's known around the world as the blind blogger. And he has a podcast show as well called What's Your Excuse? And he's written various books, one being the blind bloggers, New York City adventures and how you can make your dreams come true. So Max is a coach and very inspirational, very, very inspirational speaker. So then, Max, so tell us about how the whole New York City adventure, how it all came into place, because is it you won a prize or something? Right. In the end of 2015, I was feeling frustrated with not being able to meet more people face to face, even though I had been doing podcasts and radio interviews and connecting with people that way. The transportation options in my city are, especially out in the suburbs, are nowhere near what they are in the UK. So a lot of times if I had wanted to be at an event, it would have meant taxi or Uber that would have been expensive or it would have been met coordinating with somebody else. And oftentimes on a, a Saturday or a Sunday when most events happen, that wouldn't have really been easy because most of the people I would have asked would have been at work during the week. They would have been wanting to relax at that point. So I was feeling frustrated. I started filling out applications to anything that would give me the opportunity to travel somewhere else at somebody else's expense. And one of the things I entered is uh, the Amtrak Writers in Residence competition, which is a national competition put on by our train service. And thousands of people from all over the country compete in it. They submit a writing sample. And the idea is if you're picked, they will send you on a trip anywhere in the United States so that you can get away from your regular life and you can get those writing juices going. You can be exposed to new scenery and new people and uh, hopefully come back and create a new writing project. Or in, in many people's cases, they created their writing while they were on the train. In fact, that's where it started. There was an author from Paris who came over to the U.S. to do a conference in Chicago who had been having trouble with writer's block and finishing her latest proposal or manuscript. And she had to take a train from New York to Chicago. And by the time she got off the train in Chicago, she had sorted her manuscript and sent it off to her publisher. And she told the people at Amtrak about it. And they were like, that's such a great story. We want to do it. And it's become a thing. I submitted the first few chapters of my first book, Leading You Out of the Darkness into the Light. And surprisingly, they picked me, uh, even though if you looked at their website and read through some of the past winners, I was probably one of the least qualified or least accomplished or least accolade award 
holding type person that applied for it, but they saw something in my writing and chose me. And then when it was my time to pick where I wanted to go, I decided, well, do I want to go where I think I should go or do I want to go where I just really want to go? And the, the one thing that was in my heart was to go someplace really big and it came down to choices between Los Angeles and New York. And I decided on New York during the Christmas and New Year's holidays of 2016. It was a great trip. Part of the book is about how the Amtrak people, they just pay for the train ticket, the food and the lodging aboard the train. They do not pay for your stay once you get where you're going. So mm. arranging my stay in New York, finding the, the money to pay for where I was going to stay, doing the Airbnb as opposed to hotels, a lot of things I had to figure out, including a crowdfunding campaign that I did for the first time. <laughs> All part of that story, well, you know, my approach to things is, is I expect that somehow, some way, things are going to work out. And then I work my butt off trying to do whatever I can to make it happen. And this is where my carnival background comes into play, because we used to travel around with a small carnival. We had seven or eight rides. You know, y'all call the carnival a fun fair over there, or, or mm. y'all refer to them as fairground rides. We were never what you would call really successful at it, but we, I don't think we ever missed an opening. <laughs> I used to tell people, yeah, we would get there, but we probably wouldn't win any style points getting there. Our equipment was never, you know, top of the line, brand new, but it was always safe, clean and reliable. And, you know, we really took the approach that do we have anything out here that we wouldn't want our kids, grandkids, nieces or nephews riding on? So, uh. in fact, I don't think we had but two accidents in over 25 years of being in business and neither one of them was a serious accident. Mm. So. But over those years, you know, you get this attitude of somehow, some way we're going to get open. And yeah. I don't know exactly how we're going to do it. <laughs> we don't know who's going to do what or what kind of adventures we're going to have along the way. But we're going to get there. And that's how I approach the New York City thing. Because as late as, um, let's see, I left on December 15th or 16th, I think. As late as the first week of December, I didn't have the money for my rent. <laughs> <laughs> I actually left Houston, Texas with $400 in my pocket to go spend a week and a half, almost two weeks in New York City. And New York's I'm not, expensive. I'm not going to ruin the story for people and tell mm. them how it all worked out, but there's some fine moments along the way. <laughs> I have a good friend. Her name is Lorraine Regulie. She's edited my books. She has a website called wordingwell.com. And I like to mention her because I don't think my first book would have been written or at least not published as soon as it was without her. And she recently said, Max, you get into more stuff than anybody I know of, but you always seem to come out of it smelling like a rose. <laughs> and I just tell her, you know, I spent all them years helping drag a carnival around the country, and you just get to the point where you're just not used to having everything go your way. You know, it's... You we, get... we have a saying in the UK, it will be all right on the night. So it's, you know, and the thing is, in life, sometimes you can't control all the variables. And sometimes you just have to kind of let it go and be like, you know what, it will be all right. It, yeah. it, something will happen. Something will come up. It always does. Think positive. I'll just do what I can do. Yeah. My dad used to tell us that when we had more rides open than we had people to run them, he would say, he said, you can only do as much as you can do. So don't hurt yourself or get somebody else hurt by trying to do more than you can do. Yeah, no, it's it's a good it's a good philosophy to have. And it was one of your things you do. You you help others achieve their goals, and you know through personal coaching. So it, I think you've got to be a positive person in order to do that. Yep, I agree with you. Uh, it does help a lot that I'm positive. It also helps that I have um, 
many years of experience in finding the positive. A lot of people have tried affirmations, they've tried seeking the positive, and it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because they start out thinking they're going to do it today and it's going to work beautifully. But the thing is, is with affirmations or positive thoughts or gratitude, you have to build up to it. You have to do it every day for an extended period of time before it becomes natural and something that you can actually do when times are really bad for you. I like to say the big key is you have to decide that there's going to be something positive, whether it be an event, an experience, or a person that you'll meet along the course of your day. And that once you decide that something positive is going to happen, or once you decide that something positive has already happened, then you just do like you do with anything else that's lost. You keep looking for it till you find it. And if you can't find it on your own, then you ask somebody else to help you find it. You know, it's, I like to say it's like looking for the TV remote. Sometimes you end up with the couch cushions on the floor, but you did find it. <laughs> okay. So you, you have the, an assistant, Lorraine, who helps you out. And you mentioned her website. What was that again? Uh, wordingwell.com and she has helped me with the editing and publishing of my books and you know I have many other people who have helped me over the years I I have joked that if I ever get an opportunity to give an acceptance speech I'll have to think of names to leave out because there have been so many people who have helped me and and that's one of the other things I I'm really working to teach people because I think that one of the big blocks people have is they have this misconception that if they can't do it all themselves that there's something wrong with them that they are a failure, weak, inept, stupid, whatever, when in fact most of the really successful people have a team, it's just yes. most of the time they don't let us see the team. They don't want us to see the team. They want to impress us by making us think that they're the one doing all of this stuff. It's kind of like that scene in The Wizard of Oz when Toto yanks that curtain aside and you see that little guy back there running all those machines. It was a scam and a slim plan. And there are so many gurus and coaches out there who... They've got a team. They may be paid, volunteer, interns, family, but they got people helping them. Yeah. They just don't let you see it. So what I like to tell people is never be afraid to ask for help because when you refuse to ask, you rob the other person of the joy they would have received from helping you. And the truth is there are so many people out there, especially so in blogging, podcasting, and other online businesses that would love to help you. They either feel a sense of gratitude to people who helped them, like me, or they've spent a lot of time accumulating knowledge, experience, figuring out the complicated things. And the best part of their day is when somebody comes along and goes, hey, I'm struggling. I can't do this. I can't figure it out. I know you know this stuff. Would you please help me? Mm. And I find that if I can just get people to focus on the other person and not so much on themselves and decide that, hey, when you ask, you're robbing the other person of their blessing. A lot of people can get past that fear and ask for help. They may not be able to do it reliably, but they can do it, you know, once or twice. And if it works, then hopefully they'll build upon that and they will make so much more progress so much more quickly if they will allow other people and even encourage other people to come along on their journey and be part of their story. You were listening to The Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have the Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. So, listeners, if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Maxwell Ivey. He's known around the world as the blind blogger, award-winning self-help author, motivational speaker, prolific podcast and radio show guest, 
online media publicist and host of What's Your Excuse show. So, Max, you have, and I was shocked when I was reading your biography, you, you have lost over, is it half your body weight? In a yeah, lost very... over, 200, over 250 pounds, yes. And that's just from the weight that I weighed in at when I had my first meeting with the doctors at the uh, clinic where I would eventually have gastric surgery. And at first, I was like, I don't want to do this. This is like admitting I can't lose the weight on my own. This is the quick fix. It's something other people do. It's not something I do. But I went to their seminar and the doctors explained the procedure and they told me that only about 50% of the people who have a gastric procedure will lose 80 to 90% of the weight they need to lose and keep it off long term. That it's a tool, it's a beginning, but you have to change your lifestyle in a lot of ways in order for it to be effective long term. And not only do you have to change things like uh, switching from liquids to solids so you don't drink a lot of juice or milk, drinking more water, getting off caffeine, finding a, some sort of daily exercise, but you also have to change your mindset and see yourself as that new person that's not 500 or 600 pounds and that hopefully never will be again. So it's a, a lot of changes went into it. And if they hadn't told me it would be work, I probably wouldn't have done it because I'm one of those people, if you tell me it's easy, I'm probably not going to be interested. But if you tell me it's hard, I'm going to have to give effort for it to work. I'm usually in. <laughs> so after the gastric is bypass, right? how soon after then do you see the results? Is it literally instantaneous? Well, I wouldn't say instantaneous, but there is kind of a snowball effect where the progress seems to be much more quicker. In the U.S., we have these nasty things called insurance providers who have to be satisfied before they will pay for a procedure. So from the time I had my first weigh-in until the time I had my surgery was six months, and I had lost 81 pounds during the six months. And a lot of people ask me, Max, why did you go ahead and have the surgery? And I said, because I had lost weight like that in the past, and it, it never took. It was never a long-term change. It eventually, if, you lost, if I lost 80, I'd probably gain 100 at some point, you know, put it back on plus 20 more, which is pretty common. Yes. From the time I had the surgery, which is in October of 2012, to, I would say, the summer of 2013 was when I got down to my ideal weight. So I lost 80 pounds in the six months before. I lost over 175 pounds in the next 12, 15 months or so after. And you've kept it off. Yes, I've kept it off. I've had some setbacks. I got shingles on my 50th birthday and... Oh. You know, really didn't do anything I was supposed to do for a couple of months because that thing really will take you out of it. I've had to have a neck surgery because they found some bulgy discs in my neck. I've done some traveling. And interestingly enough, when I used to travel with the carnival, I always gained weight. When I travel to do speaking or book signings, I usually lose weight. So what I need is an extended book tour or something to get. <laughs> but I, I am so much healthier. My blood pressure, cholesterol, all the things that they measure to see how healthy you are, they're all great numbers. Just the other day, I was required by my insurance provider to have a A1C test, which is, you know, for glucose to tell if you might be diabetic or in danger of that. And it came out at a five and I'm told six and a half or seven or considered above normal or high. And they say for somebody my age, my size, who basically abused my body with food for over 30 years to have a number of five is just incredible. So I'm in very good health. I have days where I'm going, Max, you have to do better tomorrow and I will. 
I'll have 10 or 12 or 14 days in a row, you know, where I am perfect or as close to it as us human people can get. I even remember having a conversation with one of the nutritionists who had also had a surgery. And she said, yeah, every nine months to a year or so, I'll notice myself creeping into some bad habits and I'll put on some weight. She said, and then I'll go back to what worked and go back to the things I know I have to do and, you know, get back where she belongs as far as a healthy weight. And yeah. Thankfully, I am 6'4", so, you know, I can go about 260, 275, and it's healthy for me. I thought it was funny. When I got down to 256 and was, I think, 252 at one point, my surgeon said, Max, I hope we didn't take too much out because I'm starting to worry you're not going to stop losing weight. (laughs) Like, does that really happen? And he said, he said, not often. But one other thing about the surgery is I had something they call the duodenal switch, which is a newer procedure where they take part of the intestine and part of the stomach. And it allows for a whole lot less issues with gas, with uh, irregularity, with, you know, just things that are, mm. that are unpleasant as part of having the surgery. I'm glad that I went ahead and had the switch instead of having the sleeve or the bypass. And the truth is, I only had that particular procedure because my insurance company wouldn't pay for the sleeve or they would pay for the full bypass. But my surgeons explained to me why that wasn't such a good option anymore. They wouldn't pay for the sleeve, but they would pay for the switch, which is a more difficult surgery, requires more people and costs more money. Hey, I tell people all the time, as soon as you stop expecting insurance companies and politicians to make sense, your life gets a whole lot simpler. (laughs) And I'm sure a lot of people ask you, oh, how, my gosh, how you lost so much weight. How did you do it? And you have got your book. It's not the cookie. It's the bag. Easy to follow guide for weight loss success. Because right. a lot of people do struggle with their weight. Oh, yeah. In there, I share some of the things that I learned uh, before, during and after having the surgery. Because like I say, the surgery was just one part of this whole process. Yeah. And without the things that I had to learn that I share in that book, it wouldn't have been successful. And I think there's some good advice in there, especially about how little exercise it may take in order for somebody to start uh, getting healthier or why affirmations don't work and how you can make them work. And the most important lesson in that book is the chapter based on that title. And it came from the fact that after I got home from the surgery, I live with my mom, who's 75, my younger brother, Patrick, who's... He's seven years younger than I am, so he's 46, I think. And his teenage son, Seth, we share an older house outside of Houston, Texas. And you can't just tell a teenage kid they're never going to have another cookie because you can't have a bag of cookies in the house. So one week he comes back from the store and he's got a package, one package, mind you, of frozen cookie dough. And he bakes up that one package. We split it four ways. Each of us got three cookies or four cookies. We were able to feel that satisfaction you get from having sugar and chocolate without having a bag of 50 or 60 or however many cookies are in a bag because I don't buy cookies in a bag no more. Without having that big bag of cookies here in the house calling to you in the middle of the night going, eat me. There's a lot of examples in that chapter. Even if it means a little more money, even if it means a little more trash, if Buying in smaller quantities, even buying single serve of things that you enjoy eating, but you know having a bag or or a container of them in the house is not good, then that's one of those things that will work for you. And it was so important to me that somehow that ended up being the title of the book. And, you know, we occasionally we will go get a half pint of ice cream 
because you have a whole half gallon in the house. That's dangerous. <laughs> it's funny because I remember a friend of mine. We, I think we were actually talking. We don't call them cookies. We call them biscuits. Right. And I think I don't know if the analogy we were talking about was cigarettes. And she was saying, oh, you know, if she opens a packet of fags cigarettes, we call them right. fags over here. She can't just have one. She'll just finish the pack. And I said, yeah, well, can't you just have one? And she says, no, for me, it doesn't work like that. Like biscuits, I can't just have the one. I've got to finish the pack because I'll know that they're there. And like you just said, they'll, they'll be calling to me. So right. <laughs> the next time you talk to her, suggest this to her. Tell her, have somebody else buy a pack of cigarettes and then either give her or sell her the cigarettes one at a time. Yeah. <laughs> if I were. She doesn't have a whole package of cigarettes or fags. Then she might be able to control the amount she smokes. Who knows? She might eventually be able to quit. Yes. I mean, she's given up now. But I, I remember her saying that if they weren't there, she wouldn't necessarily feel the craving. It just because she knows it's there. Yeah. It's almost like she can't help herself. Right, right. And a lot of people are starting to talk about this phrase barrier to entry. And I was doing it before I even knew what it was. But basically, it means that if you can find ways to force yourself to delay doing something that you know is not good for you, then that's as good as coming to a complete stop because more often than not, you will start the process and then you'll go, this isn't worth it. Somebody recently shared an example of their credit card. You know, they have a little trouble with shopping therapy. Mm. And they found that if they would call their credit card company and have the card turned off, or suspended or whatever to where they would actually have to call the credit card company back again to have it turned on before they could make a purchase that they did a lot better with the amount of money they spent on those credit cards. So, yeah. and to me, you know, like I said, I didn't know about barrier to entry, but to me, this whole idea of having four cookies or having a half pint of ice cream or not having microwavable food so that you have to actually make food or even knowing that you have to put something in the microwave for five minutes can sometimes talk you out of food. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like and share this channel. So if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Max Ivey. He's known as the Blind Blogger and has written various books, one including It's Not the Cookie, It's the Bag, and also The Blind Bloggers, NYC Adventures, How You Can Make Your Dreams Come True. So finally then, Max, you've been blogging a long time. What would you say to people who say, well, if you're blogging, then it's easier to write a book because you're already used to writing. Would you say that you found it easy to write in that sense, or is it still a challenge? Well, I think I might be a little backwards in this area because I have taken some articles that I've written for my blog and I've copied them and included them in my book or in one of my books, let's say it. And I have to make myself do it. I actually do more of my writing just opening up a blank file and starting to write about whatever it is I think that I'm wanting to express. And sometimes I write for 30 minutes and sometimes I'll look up, it's two, three hours later and I'm still writing because I'm writing to answer a question or to share a story or to share several stories. And I don't know, I just have a problem taking my blog posts and turning them into parts of my books, although I have done it. And I think that blogging, writing, and writing for a book are two different styles because yeah. when you write for a book, you want to have a flowing narrative. Your book is generally 
this is different for some people, but generally your book is going to be broken into chapters, paragraphs, sentences. You know, your story is going to have the beginning, middle, and end, and you're going to do your best to have an organization to it. But the thing that your book doesn't usually have are headings, photos, links. And I find that one of the things I have to do when I write for my blog, and I've heard this from other bloggers, is you have to simplify your writing style. You have to put more breaks in your text, more blank space in your writing, because if people pull up your page and they're not a fan of yours already, and they see, you know, say a thousand words or 1500 words or 2000 words, line after line after line, many of them are intimidated and they close the page and go to somebody else's website. So you Mm. have to really change your style. And uh, I tend to write in much more complicated sentences in my books than I do on my blog. I'm not saying that people aren't able to read or understand it. It's just that we have to meet them where they are. And for the most part, online, the prettier it is, the more visually appealing it is, the simpler it appears, the more organized it is with headings, bullet points, things like that, the more likely people are to actually read your work. And of course, that's not the same with a book, because with a book, they've already made an investment in the purchase of the book, or uh, in some cases where, you know, maybe they get a few chapters for free, or they get the book for free as part of doing something for you. But in a book, they've made an investment. So, you know, you don't have to worry so much about are they going to be intimidated by pages because that's what they expect. And I guess that's the big difference. There's a difference in expectations in what people want and will read online in the form of a blog post versus what they will want and read in the form of a book, whether that book be read in print or read in electronic form. Yep, no, completely agree. So thank you very much, Max. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, this concludes another episode of the Authors Podcast. So just to recap, you can find uh, or read Max's blog, find out more about Max on his website, theblindblogger.net. There's more information about him there, the clients he works with, and you can hire him as your publicist. Remember to also check out his podcast, What's Your Excuse? So thank you very much. Right. May I make one final comment? Of course. Okay. One, in addition to reading my blog, if people want to listen to it, they can say, Alexa, play the blind blogger. Or they can say, okay, Google, talk to the blind blogger. And they can listen to my posts as opposed to reading them on their computers. And I'm finding more and more people are getting their information that way. So I'm trying to remember to mention that when I do interviews. And the second thing is, is I know that as a podcaster, I do this because I have a passion for it because I want to see other people get an opportunity to share their stories and hopefully inspire people in a way I can't. So I always like to make sure that I thank the host. And Lisa, I really do appreciate you for the work <laughs> oh. and effort you put into this show and also for doing me the honor of allowing some of my friends to come on the show as well. It's a true honor, and I really appreciate all the work you do. No problem. Thanks very much, Max. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, and I'll see you next time on The Authors Podcast. You have been listening to the author's podcast with Lisa Newton, sponsored by Boogles Limited. Tweet the show at Boogles underscore books, spelled B-O-O-G-L-E-Z underscore books. You can also contact your host via the email address lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And if you want to join our author's community, join the inner circle at www 
www.writeabook.net. You have just been listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. See you next time.